Folks, if you could turn with me to your Bibles, maybe you still have them open at at Genesis chapter 13. Let me let you in on a conversation we had in Kirk's session this week. We um, we were grappling with the question of whether we had enough pew Bibles. Um, we bought our Bibles a um, couple of years ago now, and we we didn't buy loads and loads and loads because the, uh, we were still dealing with social distancing at the time, and the, the congregation wasn't all that large so we know that there's probably room to buy a few more but we had a really good conversation because we realized that the the question of whether we had enough bibles that was triggered by having a lot of people here who who wanted to have an open bible before them so that's great Um, one of the one of the solutions that we came up with was was to invite you to bring your own bible as well Um, People then spoke out and said what a, what a wonderful thing it is to, to bring your own Bible to church. Um, it's something I do often. Uh, I wouldn't say I do it every time. I'm not, not afraid to come to church without a Bible. I'm not afraid what you would think of me if I did. Uh, just sometimes I would bring one, sometimes I don't. But it's, it's something I thought I'd mention this morning. Uh, if you're somebody who enjoyed bringing your own Bible to church, why not get back into the habit of doing that? I bought a journaling Bible recently, so uh, particularly on Sunday evenings, I, I bring it along to, to journal along with if somebody else is preaching and I'm not. So, so folks, have a, have a think about that, whether you want to start bringing your own Bible. I think we'll probably buy a few Bibles too. This isn't a, a money-saving exercise. Uh, it's, it's a both end. One other thing to say about Bibles, just a reminder that our uh, journals have arrived for First Timothy, although we're not uh, preaching from First Timothy this evening. Uh, it's a good time to be picking those up and to be to be ready for the next sermon in that series next Sunday evening. I feel like a failure. I sat those tests got those results and I feel like a failure I'm failing in my relationships failing to get into the kind of relationship that I want to be in failing to keep the girl failing in my marriage failing to be a good son or daughter or brother or sister or father or mother or whatever I'm feeling at work. I'm not getting the results I thought I would. I'm not getting the, the sales or the profits, the customers, the clients, the, the client satisfaction, the, the performance appraisal, the performance from my team. I feel like a failure at work. But it goes deeper than that. I'm failing to be the person I want to be. I thought life would be one long up curve. I knew there'd be ups and downs. Those don't surprise me. But I thought I'd learn from my mistakes. I thought I'd mature and I thought I'd grow. I'd become more and more the person I want to be. But I'm failing in that too. 
Friends, everything I've just said is true, true of me. At times in my life, I've felt failure in every one of those ways and countless others too. And perhaps you know about failure too. Perhaps you feel it right now. It seems to be part of our life for most of us to fail and to feel like a failure. I don't generally separate out spiritual life from the rest of life. For me, there's just life. There's the life I live before God. But, but it sometimes is helpful to, to focus on my life with God or my relationship with Jesus. It could be that our, our life with God and our relationship with Jesus is just one more area where many of us feel that we've failed or are failing. Here at Hamilton Road, we say that we're making faithful followers of Jesus Christ, but many of us don't feel like FFJCs. Many of us this morning would say, no, I'm not a faithful follower. I hoped I would be. When I first trusted Jesus to forgive my sins, I hoped I'd become less sinful. But I didn't. When I first came to Jesus by faith, I thought I'd learn to live my life by faith in him, but, but I haven't. I'm still a sinner and I'm often faithless. I am a failure. I'm not a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm a failing follower of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what I am. This morning I want to talk to failing followers of Jesus Christ people like me and I want to do that by bringing you back to God's word once more to this story of Abram a failing follower of the living God it had all started so well do you remember he heard God's call to leave and he left he left his people his country his family he heard God's call to go, so he went, not, not even knowing where he was going, but trusting God and confident that God was going to be with him. When we first met Abram in the opening verses of Genesis 12, he was living by faith. But we didn't have to read too far in the story before the wheels fell right off. Last week, as he guided us through the second half of chapter 12, Neil showed us how Abram failed to believe that God could provide for his family and, or God could protect them. Abram was faithless, you'll remember, in the face of the famine and faithless in the face of Pharaoh. But despite Abram's faithlessness, God proved faithful. He provided for Abram. He protected Abram and his family. This incident is just one of countless incidents in the Bible which validate the truth of what Paul would say two millennia later in his second letter to Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Paul, Paul of course, is right. God cannot prove faithless. He's made his promises to Abram so he will keep them. Nothing not even Abram's failure will stand in God's way. So God's going to have to work 
with Abram. He's going to have to work on Abram to make him from a a faithless, failing man into one who can live a life by faith, a faithful follower of the living God. In his classic Knowing God, J.I. Packer suggests that the biographical biblical narrative, such as the life of Abraham, which we're looking at here in Genesis, they demonstrate God's wisdom in how he deals with people. Reflecting on the passages that we're reading in Genesis, Packer begins with an honest assessment of Abram, the, the Abram we first encounter. He says that Abram was capable of repeated shabby deceptions, which occasionally endangered his wife's chastity. Plainly then, he was by nature a man of little moral courage, altogether too anxious about his own personal security. So far, so true. Abram is a disappointing character. But rather than forget about Abram, as we might naturally be inclined to do following the the incident in Egypt, Packer invites us to watch God's dealings in this man's life. And over these next weeks and months, as we study the life of Abram, I invite you to do the same. Look and see what God does with this faithless, failing man. We can expect to learn much here about how the same God will deal with failing followers of Jesus Christ today. Let's come now to our text, chapter 13. Notice, first of all, Abram's next test. We read about it in the first seven verses. He's returning from Egypt to Canaan. Abram, we read, has become very wealthy in livestock, in silver and gold. And we read verse 5 that Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. They're both very wealthy. So much so that the, the land couldn't support them and they were not able to stay together. This town just wasn't big enough for the two of them. So here we have a different kind of a test In chapter 12, Abram was faced with poverty. There was a severe famine in the land. Abram didn't have enough, not enough food to feed his family. But now he's become wealthy. He has so much livestock that he's struggling with having too much. You might think that's strange, but make no mistake about it. Poverty gives us one set of problems and wealth another. Abram's experiencing both. Abram's being tested now in relation to his wealth. As Jesus calls people to follow him in 2023 in a place like Bangor, the matters of poverty and wealth are are never far away. Some people are, are distracted from Jesus because they feel they don't have enough Oh, oh, those Christians, they're, they're all so middle class. If only God would give me a little bit more, like so many of them, then I'd, then I'd take it seriously. Then I'd commit myself to following him. Some are distracted from Jesus because they feel they've too much. Following Jesus is, is really for people who don't have a lot. It, it's a crutch. It's for the weak and the poor, those in the majority world or, or those in a low, lower socioeconomic class. I can't get excited by all of that. 
look at all I have. My money, my stuff, my lifestyle. Jesus was a peasant. He, He doesn't have a whole lot to offer me. Friends, the call of Jesus Christ cuts through all of that. Whether we have a lot or a little, he calls us to live by faith and to seek first the kingdom of God. He wants us to see that that poverty isn't a curse that keeps us from him, nor is wealth necessarily a distraction. He's calling us, like the Apostle Paul, to learn to say, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So that's the test. Abram's being tested this time, not with poverty, but with wealth. How will he respond? In contrast to the faithlessness he demonstrated in the face of the famine and of Pharaoh, we find Abram now growing in faith. We see signs of his growing faith in verses 8 to 13. His response to the problem that he has with Lot, he shows that he he values people now more than property. Did you notice that? Lot's his family, he doesn't want these economic conditions to damage their relationship so he acts to to restore peace and to protect their relationships we see also a humility in abram verse 9 a willingness to put other people first he recognizes that something needs to change in the circumstances that sacrifices need to be made he realizes that they'll need to part company and head in different directions But notice that he offers Lot the first choice. You'll probably read that and think, well, that's that's generous. What you probably don't realize is just that this sacrificial gesture is way beyond what would be required or expected of him. These men, you see, are not equals. Abram is Lot's uncle. And when you're the uncle in a patriarchal society, you don't defer to your junior. The custom of the time would be that Abram had the upper hand. Everyone would expect Abram to choose what he wanted and give the leftover to Lot. The same custom would require that Lot, the nephew, would say, no, 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 uncle, you choose the land after you. Abram values people more than property and he puts other people before himself. He's learning to live by faith in the living God and and actually to model the life of God as he lives. Abram's growing faith stands in stark contrast to Lot's faithlessness. Look carefully at what the text says about Lot. Verse 10, Lot looked around him and saw He's greedy with his eyes. Isn't that powerful writing? Can you think of how much trouble comes into our lives through the greed in our eyes? He peers around carefully, scars the landscape. He wants the best terrain for himself. 
And as he settles on this patch of well-watered ground, it, it, it's so beautiful, it, it reminds him of the Garden of Eden. We read verse 11, Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan. It's not immediately evident, but Lot is choosing more land and different land than Abram had offered him. Look again at verse 9. We read there that Lot or Abram's offering him the land on his left or his right. He's evidently taken Lot to, to some high ground. Imagine the two of them. If you, you research the geography, you should probably imagine them standing on a high ridge, around about 3,000 feet above sea level. It's like standing on the top of Sleeve Donard and looking around. Commentators tell us that people in the ancient world took their direction from the setting sun. That is, they faced west. So when you're in the region of Bethel and Ai, which we're told, verse 3, is where they are, and you're looking west, then you're looking across the land of Canaan. Abram's offered a lot is effectively a share in the promised land. If you go left down to the south, I'll go right. I'll go up to the north. If you go north, I'll go south. Lot, choose your place in the promised land. Lot chooses neither. He looks right around behind him and sees the fertile Jordan plain. And he chooses to move away from Canaan and out of the land of promise. The narrator gives us clues that this isn't a good choice. He, he tells us so explicitly there in verse 13. But there's a clue even in verse 11. He tells us that Lot set out toward the east. If you read the book of Genesis and you pay attention, it's not a good thing when somebody heads east. Who headed east? Adam and Eve, they were expelled through the eastern gate of the garden from paradise. It's to the east that Cain flees after he murders his brother. It's toward the east that the tower builders travel whenever they, they attempt their doomed building project. All of these stories about moving east symbolize a move away from the presence of God. When they're faced with this economic test, these two men head in different directions. Lot heads east because he thinks or hopes for greater and greater prosperity, all the while moving away from the place of God's blessing. Abram returns to the land the Lord has called him to and promised him. Abram is living by faith. Friends, there are times when this can be a very real choice for any of us who wish to live by faith and become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. There are times when we can face a stark choice between financial prosperity or the promise of it and living in the purposes of God. It's not always clear when we're faced with that choice, but, but I think it's a real choice on occasion. I can remember the thoughts and conversations I was having as a young adult 
when I sensed a call to leave the, the world of accountancy and to begin training for ministry. I'd spent seven years studying, first of all, a university degree, then extremely difficult professional exams. You'd be mad, people said, to throw all that away on a career that, that you know will never give you the same rewards. I remember the decision Claire and I had to make when we left Highkirk, the church where I was an assistant minister, to accept our first call to a congregation of our own. Should we go to the, the well-established, financially secure congregation that was able to offer a significantly higher stipend? Or go to Kirkpatrick Memorial, a place apparently ready for closing and, and possibly doomed to failure, only able to pay what the denomination calls the ministerial minimum salary. We sensed God's call to Kirkpatrick Memorial, and we went. These moments aren't all in the distant past. For the last six years, Claire worked on the staff team at Kirkpatrick Memorial. That's where she earned her salary. So we knew that a consequence of us leaving that church to respond to a call to go elsewhere would be to give up that salary. And we have done that. And we've had to trust God with the financial realities. Friends, we're all living through a cost of living crisis. Few of us are entirely immune from these questions of how we'll provide for ourselves and our families. We all face choices, some of which have the potential to bring us closer to God or further from the land of promise. But we're reminded today that that greener pastures are no guarantee of a place to thrive spiritually. When he chooses to live in the hill country of Canaan over the fertile Sodom plain, Abram's prioritizing his spiritual health over his financial wealth, and he's choosing to live by faith. Our Reflections on chapter 13 so far have been really quite straightforward, haven't they? We've seen Abram return home to the promised land. We've seen him face a new test, and he appears to have come through it showing signs of growing in faith. It's all very straightforward, isn't it? To leave our reflections there, I think, would be entirely naive. It would be to ignore the elephant in the room. It would be to ignore what's really been going on in Abram's life. Abram's failed. He's failed the God who called him. And his failures were not trivial. They were fundamental. God had promised him a land. And he fled that land as soon as there was a, a bit of pressure on him. God had promised him a family and he failed to trust God to protect his family. God had told Abram that his, he and his people were going to be a blessing to the world. It's ironic, isn't it? That the man God appoints to be a blessing to the nations begins by deceiving a foreign king. 
demonstrating such shoddy character that the pagan king seems like a man of great virtue in contrast. Abram's been called to bless the nations and he's failed. There it is. The elephant in the room. Abram's a failure, a complete failure. God would be well within his rights to call off this project, this this project, I'm going to bless the nations through this family. Well within his rights to say, no, that hasn't worked. If God's committed to the project, then he'd be well within his rights to say, well, okay, the project's okay, but but I need a different guy. It's going to have to be a different family. This guy's no good. He's a failure. Friends, we've talked about Abram's next test. We've talked about Abram's growing faith, but we need to finish by talking about the one thing that's made it all possible, and that's God's grace. In the remaining verses of our chapter, we see how God deals with the failing Abram. We haven't seen God as an active participant, not in the second half of chapter 12, not in the first parts of chapter 13. But what does he do when God comes back in? He doesn't shout Abram out. He doesn't tell him that he's calling the project off or that he's found a more suitable project leader. No, in this passage, we learn something of great importance about our God. We learn that he's the God of the second chance and that he's a God of faith, grace. Abram, do you remember you went to Egypt? Do you remember before you went, I promised you this land? Promise recorded for us in chapter 7, verse 12. Well, look around you from where you are to the north and the south and the east and the west, the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. All of it forever. Wow. You know, whenever a person's failed, sometimes you bring them back in and you, you say, oh, come on, it's okay. You, you can come back. It's a, it's, a, it's a qualified sort of a welcome back. All of it, forever. Abram, do you remember before you went to Egypt, I promised that I'd give you a huge family who'd become a great nation? That promise recorded verse twelve of chapter, verse 2 of chapter 12. Well, God says here now in verse 16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that anyone who could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Abram, I'm still with you. And I'm still making plans to bless you. You may have been faithless, but I am faithful. I can't do it any other way. It's who I am. You may have failed and failed me, but I will never fail you. It's not in my nature to fail my people. Wow. Our God is the God of the second chance and he's the God of grace. Friends, I wonder, do you know that about God? 
that he doesn't allow our failures to thwart his faithfulness. Ask Peter, the disciple, you know the one with the the big mouth, the one who was always shouting off, the one who promised that he'd never deny Jesus, and then three times in quick succession on the night of Jesus' arrest, he denies him, he denies him, he denies him. Peter will tell you how he failed and what a failure he felt. But he'll tell you too of the morning in the lakeshore when the risen Lord Jesus reached out his nail-pierced hands, welcomed him and forgave him. He'll tell you too how Jesus restored him to his calling. He'll tell you how Jesus was kind enough to to repeat the very same words that he'd used when he first called him from that Galilean beach or some beach around the shore, Peter, follow me. Peter, I know you failed, not not just recently, but, but many times along the way. Don't despair. The project's still on, and it's still you. We go again. Friends, we are failing followers of Jesus Christ, every one of us. We fail in our work and our relationships and we fail in our life with God. If you talk to some of the older pilgrims in the the family here, the church family, they'll tell you that our sense of failure doesn't naturally decrease over the years. In fact, when it comes to living this life, it, it can often feel as though practice makes imperfect. We look back over the years and the decades and we see what looks like a pilgrim's lack of progress. Over the years, our failures and our sense of failing can accumulate. This morning, God's word invites us to bring our very real failures into the bigger world of God's grace. Come and stand with Abram on the mountaintop. All the land that you see, I'll give you. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. What do you think that verse is about? He wants him to enjoy it. He wants him to enjoy living in his promises after his failure. We're standing on the lake shore with Peter who'd failed to answer a few questions about his friendship with Jesus. But he's now recommissioned. And he's anointed with such power that thousands will respond to his gospel message about Jesus in just a few weeks' time and turn to Christ. Whatever your failures, whatever your sense of failing, God in grace welcomes you back. Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Your failures don't define you. It's my grace 
that defines you. We go again. Now follow me.